Uh, irony. Uh, irony is a, a situation or a description that's the opposite of what you expect. Uh, where there's a gap between the reality and the description of the reality. Uh, and some examples, it's been pouring rain for a week and what do people say to one another? Lovely weather we're having. There's a gap, that's irony. Uh, did you know it's ironic that the most shoplifted book in the world, it's the Bible. Now that's ironic, isn't it? The Bible that teaches that stealing's wrong and people steal it, there's the gap, that's irony. Uh, it's ironic when the person who's tired of social media and is taking a break from social media posts it on social media that they're taking a break. That's ironic. <laughs> uh, it's also ironic, I found out doing research on what irony was, that Alanis Morissette's song, Isn't It Ironic, mostly contains examples of things that are not irony, <laughs> but, but are actually circumstance, circumstantial or... <laughs> um, uh, irony, when there's a gap between what you expect and what actually happens. And Mark 15 is full of irony. It's about the coronation of a king, King Jesus. And there's a gap between what you expect and the reality. It's ironic because the coronation, his coronation is at the hands of people who hate him rather than his loyal citizens. It's ironic that he's lifted up for all to see, but it's not on a throne, it's on a shameful cross. And his greatest victory comes as he dies and as everyone assumes that he's lost. That's irony. It's ironic that Pilate insists a sign being placed above Jesus' head, the King of the Jews, but he doesn't believe it. And neither do the soldiers who mock him with a crown of thorns and a royal robe. They're using irony to mock Jesus, to mock the Jewish people. There's a gap between what uh, we know to be true and what's described. There's more. But here's Mark's point. <laughs> There's actually a double irony. Because behind their irony, behind their mocking, is truth. They are speaking truth and they don't even realise it. That's ironic. Now those of us who know Jesus, who know the reality, we see that irony. We understand the gap between what people think and what Jesus is really like. He really is a king. And not just in a lesser way, a shadow of their version of kingship, but he's a king in a completely different upside down, far greater way. But I wonder if this is more than just a literary technique for Mark. Mark is teaching us, I think, about the nature of the kingdom of God. He's teaching us to appreciate the gap uh, between the kingdom that Jesus actually brings and, and the kingdom of this world, uh, what people think kingship is about. And, and as Christians, we need to live in that gap we need to live in the gap between what people think and the reality of Jesus' kingship. That's where it all gets practical. We need to be comfortable to live there. It seems in the world as if Jesus is not king. Wickedness seems to be winning. Dishonesty seems to be rewarded. God's people suffer. But we know different. We know that Jesus really is king. 
because he rose from the dead. Christians, we need to learn to be comfortable uh, with what it means to lead by serving rather than lording it over people. There's a gap there between the reality of true leadership and the reality of what people think leadership is. We need to get comfortable in the gap, uh, comfortable with taking up a cross, with losing our life for Jesus so that we might gain it for eternity. We need to get comfortable with the fact that people will make fun of Jesus, ignore him and dismiss him as irrelevant, take his name as a swear word. But there's a gap between what people think and the reality that we know is true, that Jesus is God in the flesh and that rather than being irrelevant, he, is the most, he lived the most significant, fulfilled life ever. And in fact, he holds the universe together. Without him, it would all fall apart. He's not irrelevant. There is no one more relevant than Jesus. And one day, the gap between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God will be closed and everything will be joined together under Jesus' kingship. Recognise the gap between what people think and the reality. The gap between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Rejoice in it. Let that gap drive you to appreciate and honour and serve this true King, Jesus. To live in his kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world. We'll add my musings on irony. So let's have a look at chapter 15. Uh, This ironic story of the king of the Jews. Verse 1, it's early in the morning, maybe 6am, it's the end of a long night. The king is outside the palace. The Jewish leaders have found him guilty. Now it's the Romans' turn. They arrive, uh, Pilate comes out, uh, and while the Jews accused him of being the Messiah, the Christ, by the time they get to Pilate, this charge has morphed from a religious one to a political one and the charge they bring against him is he's the king of the Jews. Because they know that Pilate couldn't care less about Messiah, some prophetic leader. He will care if there's a rival king, a contender for Caesar. And so that's the question Pilate puts to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 2. Now there's the question for us to consider. Because Pilate means one thing by king of the Jews and Jesus means something else. There's this gap in expectation. But Jesus doesn't immediately clear things up. He literally says in the Greek, you say. Which could mean, yes, it is as you say, like our translation in the church Bibles. But it could also mean something like, well, that's what you say, like some other translations. But but perhaps Jesus means to be unclear, you say. Because that's the question around which this chapter holds together. Is Jesus the King of the Jews? And what does that mean? For the Jewish leaders, it was simply a means to get him killed. A loose translation of Messiah that suited their purposes. For the Romans, King of the Jews was the, the claim of a rebel, Someone like Barabbas, a threat to Caesar who deserved death. And it's ironic because even though both groups mean something different by that title, they're actually correct. He is the king of the Jews, the one God sent to bring in his kingdom. But despite 
the Jewish leaders' best efforts. <coughs> Pilate sees no case. It's just some petty Jewish squabble. He tries to set Jesus free. Verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? <laughs> Verse 10, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over. Pilate knows Jesus is no king. If he actually thought he was a king, he wouldn't offer to release him. But he's making a point. Do you want me to release this king of the Jews? He's making a point to the Jewish leaders who think that they can manipulate him. But rather than a pretend rebel released, they would rather have a real rebel released. And so Pilate releases the murderer Barabbas. The innocent one is handed over to be killed instead. Well now, scene two, the Roman soldiers take over. The king moves from outside the palace into the palace. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Uh, The praetorium, it was the name for the soldiers' quarters. This doesn't sound very regal, does it? But Mark calls it the palace. Now technically he's right. Uh, it was, a, it was uh, Herod the Great's palace that they were staying in uh, where, where the soldiers were housed when Pilate came to town. But Mark's point is to show the irony. And so the king goes into the palace. And the irony continues. Even though the soldiers are going to give him a good beating, they've taken the king to the right place and they give him the right clothing, including the crown. And they mock And they mock him, they they bow down to him as if he was a real king, as if they thought he was a real king. And they give him the acclaim that's reserved for the king, for Caesar. But rather than hail Caesar, it's hail king of the Jews. But their mocking turns on them. And Mark is mocking them because the double irony is that he is just what they call him. He does deserve their loyalty, their honour. When the soldiers have had their fun, they lead him out to be crucified, the king in procession. But there's no royal carriage, there's no trumpet fanfare or red carpet, there's no crowd cheering his appreciation. In fact, there are none of his citizens, no followers, no one to help, and so they have to drag a stranger from the crowd to carry the cross piece. When Jesus becomes too weak, Simon from Cyrene, verse 21. And they went, when they make it to Golgotha, they offer him the king's cup, verse 23. But not a drink of celebration, not fine wine to heighten the senses and gladden the heart. It's wine that's mixed with myrrh, a narcotic, to deaden the pain of what's coming. How ironic. Well, next we get to scene four, the king is lifted up. But rather than see his splendid rich clothing, his royal crown, it's all gone and he's presented naked in shame. And just in case we've missed it, the sign above his head reads the King of the Jews at Pilate's insistence, sending a message to the Jewish leaders, sending a message to any likely revolutionaries thinking of starting trouble. Here's what will happen to those who oppose Rome. He's misguided and he's evil, but he's accurate. 
How ironic. And everyone joins in the ridicule. Verse 29, the passing crowds. Verse 31, the Jewish leaders. They call Jesus to come down. If he comes down, that will make them believe that he is a king. The irony is, it's only by staying there that he can become king. They say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. The irony is, it's only by not saving himself that he can save others. And verse 32, the criminals on his right and left, not positions of authority on either side of a throne, but criminals who are dying with him. And how bizarre, how ironic, when they're dying as well, that they should have the inclination to to mock Jesus. You'd think they'd have other things to worry about. And so we come to scene five, the king is dead. Everyone else has missed the irony. They see the death of an imposter rather than a king's coronation. But creation itself recognises what's happening. Creation itself recognises the reality of who Jesus is, the death of the one who spoke creation into existence. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours, creation itself reflects the blackness of sin Jesus dies for. Creation reflects the blackness of the wrath of God heaped onto his son. Creation itself reflects the blackness and lo- of loneliness that Jesus feels. And then at the end of those three black hours, Jesus cries out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? It's verse 1 of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a fascinating psalm. It begins with despair and questioning, but it finishes with joy and victory. Now, I think it's likely Jesus was quoting this whole psalm to himself on the cross as he waited for death, as he hangs there, strengthening himself with God's promises that beyond the suffering and beyond the forsaking, there will be victory. He keeps his hope fixed on what's beyond the forsaking to the deliverance. And then verse 37, Jesus breathes his last. He's achieved his purpose, he's drunk the cup, he's finished the mission. Now in the middle of all the irony, the mocking, the misunderstanding, the pain, the blackness, the confusion, I want you to notice three bright beams of light. Three brilliant moments of clarity. Three people who, despite all of the the confusion, get Jesus right. And true to form, it's ironic. They're the opposite of what we'd expect. The first becomes the first Christian confession, but it doesn't come from a close disciple, a close follower. It doesn't even come from a Jew. It comes from the Roman centurion. Perhaps he'd been there all day. Perhaps he'd been involved in putting Jesus to death. Perhaps he'd seen Jesus, how he'd acted through it all. But 
Look at his assessment at the moment of Jesus' death. He gets Jesus right. Truth that puts the rest of the lies to shame. Verse 39, surely this man was the son of God. Now, the irony is, son of God, it it was a common title for Caesar. It was printed on the coins, Divi Filius in Latin, son of a God. Or in Greek, uh, Huios Theou. But that's what the centurion calls Jesus, not Caesar. In lots of ways, it's a dangerous opinion. It's a dangerous statement to make. This man was a son of a God. But for Mark's purposes, ironically, it's correct. It's more correct than he realises. It's ironic that this first, uh, that this loyal Roman citizen, this executioner, is the first to recognise the crown King Jesus. But he's not alone, verse 40. Verse 40 tells us there were some women watching from a distance. And they're the second bright light. Witnesses to the coronation. Once again, it's ironic. It's not apostles who are there. It's not leaders. In fact, it's not even Jewish men. Uh, It's women. Jewish law says women were not legally able to appear in in a court as witnesses. They're not good enough for a Jewish trial, but here they are, witnesses to the coronation, the greatest event of history to this point. We'll see them at the tomb. We'll see them at the empty tomb, the same, uh, the same group. Uh, the third bright light comes in verse 42, the brave request of Joseph of Arimathea. He asked for Jesus' body. Pilate agrees. Joseph buries Jesus. And it's ironic, once again, why? Well, because he's one of the council, the Sanhedrin, the very ones who are responsible for Jesus' death. So why does Joseph do it? Well, verse 43 tells us, have a look at it, he's waiting for the kingdom. He's been waiting for Jesus to be crowned. He's waiting for Jesus to bring in God's kingdom. He's been hoping for it. He's been longing to see it. And now he does. So there's our three bright lights, three unlikely ironic heroes the centurion who worships, the women who witness, the council member who's waiting. And we can do the same. We can join with the same centurion and worship King Jesus. We can join with the women and witness to him. We can declare that he is king. We can join with Joseph of Arimathea and wait. Wait for the king because Jesus will return. But it will take faith and hope as we wait. Because even though Jesus is king, the irony is many people refuse to recognise it. The irony is the world often looks as if Jesus doesn't rule. There's this gap between what seems to be true and what we know is true. And as Christians, we're to be comfortable in that gap. Because we know better. We know the secret. We know that Jesus is king, that his kingdom is real and true and good, that it's not the kingdom of this world. And one day that gap will close 
One day, appearance and reality will merge. And on that day, we will join with every creature from every age, in every place, to praise King Jesus. Let me finish with these words from Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about the confused motives and the irony of correct behaviour but incorrect knowledge, uh, help us to see clearly. Help us uh, to worship as the centurion did. Help us to witness as the women did. Help us to wait as Joseph did. And we long for that day when Jesus, King in our hearts, will be revealed as King of everything. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing our final song.